I was having lunch with Pat we, this week. We met on Thursday for lunch, and he was asking me as we were driving to lunch. He says he was just asking me about how the preparation for Sunday was going because he's you know leading. He's back in leading music for us and helping out again there and trying to think through the music. and And I'm sure I answered with a very confident, "Okay, I guess." Uh, it was Thursday, the, the clouds were pretty much settled in, and, and as I was thinking about this text and trying to see what, what, what God has for us here, it was a struggle early in the week. It's a different kind of passage than we've seen so far in our study of John. John 7 is, I just, has, has anybody ever memorized a verse from John 7? Be, just be honest, does anybody know a verse by memory from John 7? There's probably not another chapter in John that I could ask that question and we wouldn't have hands raised. Um, have you ever, do you remember ever hearing a sermon from John 7? I'm sure you have, but do you remember it? <laughs> okay. Alright, so we're in great shape then, aren't we? So everything I say is going to be really profound because, uh, you, you, this is not one of those passages in John that you think, John 7, I know exactly what's in John 7. This is that, yeah, right, fruit that's just low-hanging fruit, and we're going to pick it, and it's great. No, it's not, that, it's not that kind of passage. Don't leave. Don't get up and leave. Just hang with me. There's good stuff here. Uh, um, my preaching professor, one of preaching professors in seminary, Dr. Alex Mont- or Professor Alex Montoya, he was, a, he was a pastor of a church in East L.A., and he, he with his Hispanic accent, he would say to us, want to be preachers, something like this, you in every text of Scripture, you have to see the drama. And, 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 that, and, and, and he would say, in every passage of the Bible, there is drama. There's, there's a story, there's a point, there's something there. And, and, and I confess, early in this week, I was struggling to see the drama in these first verses of, of John 7. But as I thought about it, as I continued to read over it, as I prayed, I, I saw it. I see Begin to see the drama in John 7, and I hope you will today as well. The drama centers around an implied question in this text. And the question is something like this. Who do you say Jesus is? Who, who do you say He is? What, what's the word on the street? I mean, we have all of these polls right now, and this is I hear more about this this year than any other year. The favorability polls and, and, and unfavorability of the candidates, of our presidential candidates. Well... What, what, what's the word on the street about Jesus? And throughout John 7, we're going to see this wide range of popular opinions about who Jesus is. But what's clear is that this question of Jesus' identity, it always causes division. There's conflict, there's, there's opposition, and it's explicitly stated down in John 7, verse 43. There was a division among the people over Him. He's, he causes this division. And so... Let me bring this drama of John 7 into the present. Just imagine yourself tomorrow at your workplace, for those that work at a place of employment. You go there, you go into the break room at lunch tomorrow, and you say, can I, can I have everybody's attention real quick? I just have one question. Who do you say Jesus is? And you have instant drama. Instant division. That's a highly controversial question. At work, it might just kind of create some kind of polite disagreements and some exchanges, and it might lead to some grumbling and complaining to their to your boss about bringing religion into the workplace, that kind of thing. But but in most parts of the world, that question fuels hostility and hatred and 
even violence. There are, there are, uh, there are, there will be people today who are arrested, imprisoned, beaten, even killed because of how they answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And this is nothing new, as we'll see. This has been going on since the time of Christ. The, the world is divided on the Jesus question. Who is He? And because of what He claims for Himself, it's not an option to just say nice things about Jesus, but not really believe that He is who He says He is. It's not an option. We, you probably know the, the extended quote of C.S. Lewis, but that you have to say that Jesus is either Lord, He's a liar, or He's a lunatic. You can't be neutral. You can't just, again, say nice things and not either completely believe Him or reject Him. The closer Jesus came to the cross, and, and here we are about six months away from that event, the more divided people became about Jesus. The more open the opposition was, the more obvious the unbelief, the more... As John 1, 10-11 says, His own people did not receive Him. And so what, what was it about Jesus' life, His teaching in particular, that caused such hostility, such division in His day? And why is that still the case today? Why is there such a negative reaction in the world concerning Jesus? Even in our own society, that, and increasingly so in our society that prides itself on tolerance. Why is there this reaction? Well, uh, what, I, what I want us to see is that we just see three, three reasons why Jesus caused division then and still causes division today. And we can expect people to react to one or more of these three things even today. And so the first thing that we'll see, the first reason we see that Jesus causes division then and still does today is that Jesus unmasks evil. He unmasks evil. We'll see this in verses 1 to 9. He shows sin for what it really is. He just floods the darkness with light and, and we see it. We see it, verse 7, explicitly. The world hates me because I testify it about it that its works are evil. That's a, so that's the first thing. This is the first problem people have with Christ is that He unmasks evil. Let's get a running start to that statement and then we'll... Develop it more. But back, verse 1. After this, after the two days he spent in Capernaum. Remember, feeding of the 5,000, which was really fifteen or 20,000 people. Walking on water, storming sea. They make it to Capernaum. Jesus teaches the bread of life discourse. He talks about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Many disciples leave him. And he's just left with the twelve. And so after that, after those two days there in Capernaum... Uh, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So he's staying more remote. He withdraws from the crowds. He spends time with the twelve. For six months he does this. And so he's, he's teaching the disciples. He's preparing them for life without him after he ascends to the Father. And it's during this time that he reveals himself to to, to, to Peter and James and John in this, in this unique way, revealing His glory in the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's all happening during these six months. So then after this, verse 2, now the, feast, now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. The 
the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Howard already covered this for me, so thank you. No, actually, it's helpful. So, uh, so again, early October, it, all the Jews would stream into Israel. And so you had all of these temporary kind of housing. These, they make you branch, tree branches and limbs and, and these boughs and leaves. And they would form these kind of temporary shelters, these booths or tabernacles. And everybody, would, even if you were a resident of Jerusalem, you went out of your house and you stayed in this temporary shelter for these seven days during the Feast of Booths. And it was this festive time. Think of like some big music festival in our day, minus the music and the immorality and the mind-altering drugs, that kind of a thing. But this happy, joyous, celebratory time, reunions of people, and they're coming together and families together. And so that's, that's this time. Again, remembering God's leading, guiding, protecting, providing for His people during the wilderness. And so, verse 3, so his brothers said to him, Leave here, leave Galilee, leave the sticks, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Why? Verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So one thing we see, Jesus has younger brothers. <laughs> They're really half-brothers. These are is the sons, the biological sons of Mary and Joseph. So after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they had other sons. We know their names, Matthew 13, 55, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but, but a son named Judas. And so what do they do? They, they decide to form this little PR marketing team of advisors to help Jesus out in his little movement. And so they, they come to Jesus and they bend his ear and they're not motivated by love for God. They're not motivated really by love for their brother even. That we'll see that it's, it's more selfish. There, there's political ambitions. There are possibly financial uh, motivations here. And so they, they could be the brothers of the guy who, who, who redeemed Israel from the Romans. And so, so that's kind of the thought here. And so their advice sounds kind of like the political strategies we're hearing right now across our own nation in this election cycle. Do you, what do they say? You need to go to Jerusalem. Get out of Galilee. Get out of Hicksville. Go to the big city. Go where, where, where the people are. Maximum exposure. Where all the important people are. You've got to get there. And, and, and you've got to recoup those losses from all of that flesh-eating and blood-drinking Stuff you were talking about in Capernaum, all the disciples left. You know, maybe, maybe you can get disciples back. Those that those that that followed you before you went to Galilee. So you need you need some image work, Jesus. You got to restore this this image. You you got to get among the people, shake some hands, let people see you, and and and, and that you're not some weirdo who promotes cannibalism and that kind of stuff. So I mean, they're sort of saying you got to get there. And then they, what do they tell him? They advise him to, you gotta keep on with the miracles, Jesus. Play to your strengths. Use those things. And so you, and, and get the most bang for your buck. Go during the feast and all these thousands of people here, all these pilgrims here. And do some miracles, Jesus. This is their plan. This is their strategy. They sound supportive. Brothers of Jesus. They believe he has the ability to work these miracles. But as verse 5 makes clear, they don't really believe him. 
Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. There's your drama. These brothers, they grew up with Jesus. They had a front row seat for this sinless life of their brother. They, 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 they heard the stories about his miraculous conception and birth, no doubt, time and time again from their parents. And yet they don't believe in him. They don't believe he's the Son of God. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he, 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 he's, he's the promised one who will come to die and rise again to atone for their sins. They don't believe him in that way. After Jesus' resurrection, we find out that they eventually do believe. They do a complete 180. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. But, but here, they, they're yet to believe. James, brother James, will be the one who goes on to write the epistle of James in the New Testament. But I mean, just this is just kind of a sidebar, but I think it's a good opportunity because I know this is a real burden that some of you have. You, many of you have heavy, heavy hearts for family members who don't know Jesus and don't believe in Him. And, and their rejection of Jesus weighs heavily on you. And you have sons or daughters, parents, siblings, or grandparents or grandchildren who, who don't believe Jesus. And you know that those who don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God abides on them. John 3.36 remains on them. That's a hard thing. That's a hard reality for you. And so this account should give you hope. If you feel like you've tried everything, you've pleaded with them, you've prayed for them, you've read the scriptures to them, you've shared the gospel with them for over and over again, with, and it seems to have just zero effect. I just, you, you don't know what to do, you're ready to give up. I just say don't. As long as there's breath in their lungs, there's still hope. Jesus can, can, as we sing sometimes, just change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. He's, he's able. Jesus knew what it was like to have a family who didn't believe in Him. And, and, and they, they, but they did eventually believe. I'm not trying to say your family dynamic is just like Jesus' here. But I'm saying the same Spirit that opened the eyes of Jesus' brothers to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and caused them to be born again is the same Spirit of God that can work in your own family. So don't lose heart. Continue to pray. Continue to be faithful to share. Um, be encouraged by this. Well, back, back to John 7. So Jesus' brothers, they're sure. They, they've, got a, they've got a great idea for Jesus. You've you, you got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to go now during the feast. But Jesus begs to differ. Verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You can go whenever you want. And, and, and all, all time seems right to you. But the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, you remain in Galilee. So Jesus is saying, time's not right yet. My time is not yet fully come. Time's not full. The lower compartment of that hourglass of the Father's will is not full yet. And so, so it's, not, it's not it. I, I don't go, I don't move at the, when, the, when the marketing strategies say it's time to move. 
I move when the Father says it's time to go. Father's will. It's not the Father's timing yet, and timing is everything to Jesus. And we'll see that we've seen this throughout the Gospel. And so he says, my time isn't yet come. I, we're going to see this, my, my hour hasn't yet come, or now it, the hour has come. And when, he, when Jesus refers to the hour, he's always referring then to his crucifixion. Now, the question is, what is Jesus? What is the time that he's talking about here? I, I don't think it's the time of his crucifixion based upon the context and what we're going to see, because he does eventually go. Um, but what I want you to see, back okay, in verse 7, even if he does go with his brothers at this time, it's not going to work like they want it to. It's not a good PR strategy because he's not going to be welcome there. The world, the world system and, the, and those that live in it that is set against God, it's not going to receive Jesus. It hates him. It's not, it's not just that there's going to be a little bit of friction and, and, and so they're just going to have to kind of be a little disagreement. They can just kind of live and let live. No, the, the world has this deep-seated, deep-rooted hatred against Christ. And why? Because Jesus testifies that its works are evil. He, he, he's hated because he confronts the world in sin. He shines light in darkness. And this is a big problem for people. A big problem people have with Jesus. And, it, and that's still the case today, isn't it? Our culture will, will gladly accept kind of this happy, anemic, weak quiet, churchianity. You go to church, come home, nothing really changes, doesn't really impact anything in your life. There, the world is okay with that kind of religion. No problem with that. But it has a major problem with, with Jesus, a biblical Jesus, the Jesus who unmasks sin, a vibrant following of Christ, the way Jesus unmasks idolatry, Anything that we substitute for the only true God and worship of Him and trust of Him. And we have all kinds of substitute idols. There are false religions that, that, again, this is horribly offensive to say there's one God and there's only one way to that true God and that's through Jesus Christ. That means that all other religions of the world are wrong. Every, every, everyone else, everything else is a lie. That's a... That's an offensive thing for the world. And we have all other kinds of idols and money and other things people look to for, for put their confidence in and, and give their attention to and, and, and put their hope upon. Jesus unmasks all of that idolatry. And that's troubling to the world. It's offensive. And Jesus shines a light on sin that we keep hidden, on the stuff that we try to keep the lid on. And so, so there's some slight provocation in your life, and this this roaring, this 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 stuff just comes roaring out of your heart like an angry monster. So you, your your kids do something that just really you don't like, and you become this screaming, angry, door slamming monster. You get exposed, and and the issue isn't what they've done. The issue is is sin in your heart, or you're commuting to work, and some guy cuts you off, and your first thought is, "Oh, bless them." Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's not joy, it's not love, it's, it's revenge. I've got to catch up. I've got to make them pay. I've got to give them an angry look or got to do something so they know 
that I'm angry. So what is Jesus, I mean, throughout Jesus' teaching, He unmasks our anger. And what does He say in the Sermon on the Night? He says, it's murder. He unmasks our lust and calls it adultery. He unmasks our fear and worry and says, that's sin. He unmasks our love of money or greed. He unmasks our selfishness and pride and our, oh, me and my rights and i got to have what I want and when I want it. And Jesus just... He just blows the cover off of all of that and just calls it for what it is. This is evil. And even, even what Jesus says about the way we deal with sin is a problem for the world. Because what does Jesus say? You've you got to own it. You've got to admit it. You've got to confess it. Repent from it. Turn from it. Change. What does the, what does the world say? It's just, just deny it. Blame someone else for it. Minimize the triggers in your life. Whatever makes you mad, you minimize the trigger. And I don't know how that works with kids. I don't know if you start selling them off one by one on eBay or something like that, but I don't recommend that. I'm just, but, but this is, this is how the, but Jesus just unmasks that. He answers the total opposite. He says, you don't need, you, you don't need therapy for guilt. You need to confess your sin and you need to find forgiveness in God. It's mercy. And so he unmasks sin. Because of that, people hate him for it. <laughs> he testifies that the works are evil. And make, make sure you get this. It's not Jesus' manner of teaching or his, his manner of living that causes the problem. It's not that Jesus is really obnoxious, and that's why people don't like him. I, I, know, I know people who seem to find joy in irritating unbelievers, just rubbing them the wrong way and... And it can be abrasive and rude and, and arrogant and obnoxious and just kind of cantankerous. They think they have the spiritual gift of jerkdom or something like that. That's not, that's not what we're saying here. As Christians, we shouldn't deliberately needle people and provoke them. But, but Jesus is loving. He is compassionate. He is patient. He is gracious. But He will not compromise when He sees sin. And he calls sin, sin. And that is actually the most loving thing he can do. And so, so this is the, it's the first thing. As, 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 as Jesus is rejected, one of the reasons, one of the reasons there's this division, this opposition, is because he unmasks evil. And he receives hatred for it. Second reason that Jesus causes division in what he teaches is that he, he holds the inside lane with the Father. He holds the inside, inside lane with the Father. Think track, think NASCAR, some of you weirdos. Um, I just offended half the congregation, I'm sorry. Um, but, but, but Jesus claims, he, he makes this claim that he has this special, unique, privileged position with the Father. Because he does. I don't know, he just claims it, but that's what he's saying in his teaching. He he has what the most religious of the Jewish leaders could never have. And this union with God the Father. He, they, they could study about God. They could talk about God. But Jesus knew the Father. And what He spoke was from the Father. So we had this special, unique relationship. The claim of Jesus brought, that, that claim of Jesus brought and continues to bring hostility, division. So verse 10 Halfway through the feast, we find out it is the Father's time now to go to Jerusalem. So he goes up, verse 10, not publicly, 
but in private. So by this time, the roads are probably pretty much clear, but maybe he journeys at night, takes the, you know, kind of the off the, travels off the beaten path, but he, he goes in private. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering among about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the Jewish leaders, they're looking for him, but they expect him to arrive early, the beginning of the feast. He doesn't show up. And then there's this murmuring among the people of the city, the people on the street talking about Jesus. Who, who is he? What is, what is he really about? But it's all spoken in whispers. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's sticking their neck out there and saying anything publicly. No one dares to speak openly. Why? Because of this, this stranglehold that the religious establishment has upon the people. This pressure. This fear. Nobody wants to get the knock on the door at night. To be interrogated by the religious authorities. So it's just whispering. There's talking. All these contrasting opinions about who Jesus is on the street. And it's interesting that this is where our own society seems to be headed more and more, isn't it? It's okay to talk about Jesus in whispers in private, but it's not okay in the public square. It's increasingly not okay. And, and, and I just pray for, pray for our children, your grandchildren, these graduates, students that are coming out. They're going into a, a different world, and God will give them everything they need and will give us everything we need to... To, to live as lights in however dark the world is. But, and so I, uh, it's not cause for fear, but I'm just saying it's nothing new for governments to exert this kind of pressure uh, that the people in Jerusalem felt and that maybe we are feeling more and more. So Jesus, he slips into the city unnoticed, incognito, and and what does he do though? With all this murmuring, with these religious leaders trying to keep everything hush hush, keep everything quiet, everything in order for the feast, it's not causing any disturbance. What does he do? Does he just kind of slip away quietly, retreat, back off, sneak back to Galilee? No. Verse fourteen. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching. He goes right, right to the nerve center of Israel where all the religious leaders, all the rabbis, all the teachers are there talking about God, sitting, discussing who God is. Jesus goes right there and He begins teaching and people begin listening to Him. And as He teaches, He stands out from the rest of the teachers that are there in the court of the temple. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled. That's not marveling like, ooh, godly amazement. No, they're just marveling at the audacity of Jesus to go into their temple and, and, and speak as He is. Look at what He says. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He never degree from one of our accredited institutions, seminaries. He doesn't... How, how does he have the audacity to come in here? He hadn't been trained in one of our rabbinical schools. Jesus answered them, verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but it is, but his who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I'm not taught by men. I'm not self-taught. I'm instructed by God. By God the Father. 
Himself. And not only has His content from God the Father, but, but God has commissioned Jesus to go and to proclaim what He's teaching. He's sent by God. So He's claiming, again, as we see, He's claiming to hold this inside lane with God Himself. And this, is, this makes Jesus' teaching stand out. He's he's spent an eternity with the Father. He knows the Father. He loves the Father. And it's out of that relationship with the Father that the Son speaks. And it's like nothing the people have heard. I mean, if I asked asked you to teach a lesson on J.K. Pell, sorry, I'm going to embarrass you for just a second. There are a lot of people who would offer to do that one. I'm just, I'm guessing. But... But you know stuff about him. You maybe know where he's from, where he was born, where he was raised. You know about his, where he went to school, where his military experience. You know uh, his career. You know his interests. You know you have stories to tell about J.K. We all have stories to tell about J.K. Um, good ones. And and uh, but Lo- Becky and Laura, wherever Laura is, they could really talk about J.K. <laughs> I mean, they have a different kind of knowledge of him as a husband, as a father. There's more intimate. There's a closeness there that that we wouldn't have. And 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 on a, in a much greater way, Jesus is Jesus's teaching is radically different from these other religious teachers and leaders in the temple. It's just just a silly illustration to, to say it's a totally different scale. They talked about God. They passed along things that they had heard other teachers say about God. But here comes Jesus, and He knows the Father. And the Father has given Him words, what words to say. And, and so there's this reality, there's this vibrancy, there's this life to Jesus' teaching. And, 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 the, and this here's the thing, it's what we see in verse 17. These religious leaders that so opposed Jesus, they could have seen it. They, if they wanted to, they could have seen it for what it was. But they didn't want it. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now this is a little tricky, kind of a tricky verse, but I don't think it's overly complicated. I see it in its context, and it's very important. What is Jesus saying? He's just saying, our, un, our ability to understand God's Word is related to our determination to do God's will. So, in a sense, right willing leads to right knowing. And, and so, in its context, I'm saying, if, if, G, if these religious leaders really had hearts that were submitted to God and to His will, then they would have recognized that Jesus' teaching was from God. But they did not. If your heart is unsubmissive to God, if you don't really desire to know God's will and and then to do His will once you know it, then the Bible is going to be a closed book to you. I mean, you can read it. It's just... It's a dead book. It's empty. It's it's hollow. And 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 it's going to seem that way. And this, and this is one of the things we see. I think of this verse is that unbelief, like we see on full display here, it's not it's not just a mental problem. It's not an intellectual hurdle we have to get over. We got to convince them. We got to have the proofs and lay out the argument. It's ultimately a moral issue. I mean, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1. 
This is, this is, it's a moral problem. I don't want to know God. I don't want to do His will. So, but if we would, we would have our eyes open to see. That's why it's got to be the work of God. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 18. Let's keep moving here. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So because Jesus is sent by the Father, because He speaks the words that the Father gives Him to speak, He directs all glory to the Father. And that, stand, that makes Him stand out from the rest of the teachers in the temple there. Because they were all in it for selfish ambition. They wanted to be known. They wanted fame. They wanted to be, this reputation as this profound teacher of, of the law. They, 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 they talked about religion. They talked about rules. They talked about tradition. All in an effort to impress people. And then here comes Jesus, and he doesn't care about people marveling at him and his teaching. He wants people to marvel at his Father. He wants directing attention to the Father. His goal is different. He wants to help people know the Father through him. So he stands out. And this is just evidence that what he says is true. Sets him apart from all the others. I I think there's an exhortation here for... Those of us who teach the Bible, and that's for preachers and Sunday school teachers and parents, and really all of us. I mean, teaching is part of the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I mean, so we're all to be teachers in some capacity, but, but, but what, as we teach, as we instruct others, as we talk about the Lord, as we open the Scriptures with people, in whatever context that is, we, we need to be glasses that help people see God clearly. Help see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and His glory, and His radiance, and His perfections. We don't want to fog the lenses for people by caring about ourselves, and how we come across, and how clever we sound, or those kinds of things. We need to, we need to be those who, we want people, we want to be teachers who are gripped by the greatness of God and His truth, and it just, it's evident. And, and, and we love, we know, we worship, we glorify, we obey, we submit our lives to Him. And so, Jesus here, what is He, what is he doing? And one of the things that, again, what causes so much division over Jesus, is what the people of the world hates Him for, is that He claims to, again, hold this inside lane with God the Father that no one else can have. And it's not received well. I mean, people were fine with religious instruction by the rabbis and let's talk about morality and talk about laws and traditions and what I have to do to, to kind of maintain my standing before God. Everybody's okay with that. Just keep, keep it at that level. But, but divine truth from Jesus, that's not okay. It brought anger, it brought division, it still does today. I mean, today people don't have a problem, again, with this kind of anemic, tepid religious instruction from clergy and religious studies majors at universities. And and we can talk about moralism and, and Bible stories, that's fine. But you have this robust biblical teaching on Jesus Christ and His sufficiency and His exclusivity and His deity and 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 you really know and love and believe and you preach the Jesus of the Bible, it's going to cause division. It's going to happen. All right, third, finally. Third 
thing that we see here that it causes division about Jesus is that Jesus exposes hard-hearted religion. He exposes hard-hearted religion. Verses 19 to 24. He takes the confrontation even further. These religious leaders, they prided themselves in their, their understanding and their obedience to the law of Moses. They follow Moses. They, they sought to earn acceptance from God by keeping the law, by observing the traditions of men that had developed and grown up around the law. And so they, this is, they prided themselves. And then, then Jesus says in verse 19, has not, has not Moses given you the law? And yet, none of you keeps the law. You talk about just throwing a hand grenade in there. What are you, you, are you crazy? Yes, we have. We love the law. We keep the law. Then, why do you seek to kill me? They're, they're, they're these religious posers. They pose as these guardians of the law, the law of God that's summarized in one word that's love. What does he say? You have this hatred, you have this malice, you have this murder in your hearts. You claim to love and keep the law, but none of you do. And he touches a raw nerve with this. So the crowd, crowd answered, verse 20, you have a demon. Who is, who is seeking to kill you? I mean, the crowd, they've got no conscious thought of we're going to murder Jesus. That's not in their minds at this point. It's going to come, but that's not here now. So they say, Jesus, you must be crazy. You must be demon-possessed. You're, you're, you're paranoid. What are you talking about? They don't know that the Jewish leaders already have it in their hearts to take Jesus out. And Jesus goes even further, verse 21, and Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you marvel at it. What's, what's he talking about here? He, the context will make it clear. But the work he's referring to is back in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. You can flip back there real quick if you want. John 5, this is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Remember all the sick, all the lame people sitting around the edge of the pool, waiting for the stirring of the waters. Perchance they could, could be healed of their disease. And Jesus walks up to one of them and says, You get up, pick up your mat, and go home. You're healed. So verse 9 of John 5, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And he goes out of the pool area and who's the first person, first people that he runs into? The Pharisees. <laughs> and, and they say to him, wow, you're walking, this is great. No, they said, what do you think you're doing? Who said you... What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? And who who healed you on the Sabbath? Told you you could do that. So, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus is going after that point here in John 7. He's coming back to this, because they had all witnessed this. And he's getting to the root of their hostility. This hard-heartedness of their religion and their religious fervor. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. It predated Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Um, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's body, a whole body well. 
So he's setting up this dilemma for them. They, they had, the law says that all male children must be circumcised on the eighth day. So what happens if a kid's born on the, eighth, on, on the Sabbath? So on the eighth day, it's going to be another Sabbath. And so they're going to work on the Sabbath. Sabbath circumcision is work, as they defined it. And so which, which law are you going to break, Jesus is asking. He's saying, you, you put aside one law in order to do another one all the time. He's, he's, he's a little gotcha moment here. Yet when on the Sabbath, Jesus heals this man who's, a, who's, he heals him and he essentially restores him into covenant life. Because as a, as a lame man, he was basically excluded from, uh, from life and the temple and all those covenant privileges. And so it's more than just physically healing him. He's, he's giving him, he's bringing him back into the covenant community. And, and what do they do? They get angry, the text says. You're angry. You're hypocrites. Your hearts are so hard. You're so blind. Your whole understanding of the law, your whole understanding of God is just wrong. This religion that you've made and developed, it's wrong. He says, verse 24, do not judge by appearances. Don't judge superficially. Judge with right judgment. Right judgment. What does that look like? It's verse 18 again. Consider the source. Where does what I'm saying come from? And, and my motive, it's to glorify God. This is how you need to judge me. How you judge teachers. He, but what is he doing? He's exposing this hard-hearted religion of the Jews. And their, their anger about someone who's been restored. And his whole body has been made well. Because it doesn't fit with their expectations and traditions. They treated God's law and religious traditions kind of like weapons to force their own agenda. So, so you have these three, three aspects of Jesus' teaching in His life and His ministry that just bring division. People were divided because of Him. He causes opposition. But this is... These very reasons that the world hates Jesus are the very reasons that we love Him. He exposes our sin. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for showing me that hideous, deadly, soul-killing presence of sin in my life so that it drives me to You for help and grace. And He... And he, and he, he he claims to have this inside track with the Father, this inside link. Thank you, Lord, that there is one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And you've opened up that way to us. That we know this now. And he, and he exposes hard-hearted religion. Thank you, Lord, that we, 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 we're, not, we're not enslaved to the traditions of men, but been set free from that and we have life and the spirit through Jesus Christ and that's going to come next week we'll see that verse 37 and 38 so again this is these are reasons as Howard said may we love Jesus more as we see this in John 7 and as we continue to work through here I just say one other thing is what we see we see in John 7 we see unbelief taking all kinds of shapes and sizes comes in all different Appearances, but it's the same and it's true. You have the unbelief of Jesus, Jesus' pro Jesus brothers. 
They were superficially for Him, and yet they did not believe in Him. You have the unbelief of the anti-Jesus enemies. You have the unbelief of the fickle crowds who just, you know, kind of just trying to figure this out. But it all, again, it all comes from the same root. And the problem with unbelief, it's not, it's not, it's not an information problem. It's not a mental obstruction. It is a heart obstruction. It's a heart obstruction. Clear, clever arguments aren't ever going to be enough to convince people to believe in Jesus. They have to have a change of heart. God must work. And we saw this in John 6. God, and this is the reality. God does work. He does draw people to Himself. He does open blind eyes to see the light of the Gospel. If He hadn't, we wouldn't believe. We were there. So, so this encourages us. Whatever opposition comes as we proclaim Jesus, we have this confidence that God is able. He's done it for us and He can do it for others. But, but He causes people to be born again to a living hope. And it is the new birth that's required. John 3. And so this is, this is why John has written. This is, this is it. Because eternity is at stake. And we must believe in Jesus for eternal life. He, this is why John makes such a big deal about unbelief here in John 7. This is why this is included in John's Gospel, I think. I mean, this is part of the, these things. John 20, 31, the purpose of the, of the whole book. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Believing is how you get eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the offer. Believe Receive life. And that, op- that offer is to you today. It's an open invitation. John 3.36, finally, whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, though, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? I- I'm aware. We may have family members, and here we're talking about praying for family members who don't believe Jesus, and you may feel this awkwardness because maybe you're that family member, and that's okay. We're glad you're here. I'm thankful, and I'm not going to embarrass you or intend to single you out. If you're if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, and you you, you think this is you don't see this as truth, that's okay. I ask that you just consider what you've heard this morning, and and. Maybe ask God. Just ask God if just to help you. Is this true? And help you see it. And and um, and we, we we will pray for that. And we're happy to talk with you. And so we're honored that you're here. But if you've not trusted in Jesus, if you if, we, if your eyes are being opened for the first time, believe Him today. Trust in Him. We would love to talk with you and share more about that. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you for the the these. Again, for what causes so much negative reaction to Jesus um, in a hostile world is, is what just provokes in us love for Jesus. That, that just the name of Jesus brings joy to our hearts. It puts song on our, on our lips. And 
so I pray that even as we sing now of this Jesus that we see here in John 7, that you would just help us to rejoice in the grace that is ours by having eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ. And may though, if there's anyone here who, whose eyes are still closed to the glories of Christ, that you would open them and they would believe, find eternal life today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.